This is a crypto finance podcast. We are holding internal knowledge sessions and publish selected episodes to share our know-how and experience with you. Today we're going to talk about DeFi, meaning decentralized finance. This is basically part of a, let's say, two-part session. I will do a more general intro and talking about the basics, I would say. And then Hoysi will go deeper, as he already did in some of his market commentary, in some of the projects that he has looked at and what exactly they're doing and how it works. So mine will be a little more basic and protocol-oriented without shilling any products, obviously. Okay, who has used decentralized finance? No one? I have used DAI. No. Okay, and you have used DAI. Yes. Okay, I mean, so decentralized finance, the term is still pretty new. And in the end, it's all about making finance accessible in a decentralized way. So in its most basic form, Bitcoin is also decentralized finance. What Bitcoin covers is obviously just payments, as some say, so no smart contract functionality. But I would say that's already decentralized finance. When people talk about DeFi or decentralized finance, they obviously more mean further protocols which rely on an underlying blockchain. Currently, the total value locked in decentralized finance, meaning all these projects that lie on top of existing blockchains, mostly it's now um, Ethereum at the moment, is right now at 4.3 billion US dollars. Then there's different sites which list all these different decentralized finance protocols and what they do. It is important to note there that Maker, which goes back to Alessandro Stai, which is the stable coin that is within the Maker protocol, has a dominance of 31%. The first one is there with Maker, that's based on Ethereum and that's basically lending and borrowing. The second one is Compound, which also relies on Ethereum and is lending and borrowing. And the third one is Synthetics, which is also based on Ethereum and does derivatives. The first one that's not lending and borrowing or some kind in that direction is number H8, which is wrapped BTC, which is also on Ethereum and it's in the assets class. Um, then on the 11th place, we have Flexa, which is also based on Ethereum and which is, as they call themselves, payments. And then the only one on this list of the top decentralized finance protocols, applications, is number 20, which is Lightning, which, as most people know, is on the Bitcoin blockchain and it's also in relation to payments. May I ask something? Yes, um, sure. So the majority of these things is based on Ethereum platform. Why? Is there a specific reason for that? The reason is pretty simple. On the Bitcoin platform, you don't have these fully fledged Turing complete smart contracts, which can do amazing things. So with Ethereum, you have way more possibilities in the smart contract space. Also, um, what is important is that if it's on Ethereum, these interact with ERC-20 tokens, which is a standard to interact with each other. 
come a bit to that um, later. So the fastest air growing area in decentralized finance is the is borrowing and lending platforms. So basically going away from having just Bitcoin or Ether as sort of payment, but that you can do more advanced financial products or ideas from the traditional world, such as lending and borrowing without having an intermediary, fully trustless, open source, transparent, um, and everyone basically can apply, can use their crypto to lend it out or then apply for a loan or just borrow um, by giving some collateral. The whole decentralized finance thing first started probably off with DEXs. Who knows what a DEX is? Decentralized cash. Exactly. So the goal or the idea behind DEXs was that what we have now is mostly centralized exchanges such as Bitstamp, Kraken, Binance or whatever, that you could all these functionalities that central exchanges have, that you also could that, do that on the blockchain and basically build decentralized exchanges. So you no longer have to go through KYC processes. You can just interact directly with an exchange without having the risk that your coins get hacked or your money gets lost somewhere on the way because you don't have this central intermediary where, which you have to trust in the end, right? So the idea was to solve everything by technology and do as much as you can on chain. Do we know any successful decentralized exchange? Quite a few around by now, meaning there, I think there are lists with like 50 different DEXs. In comparison to flows, I mean, can, Yes, but because it's yeah. everything is on chain, you can obviously track everything. Okay. So there are also aspects coming in if you're on a centralized exchanges, the centralized exchange knows what you're doing, but not everyone knows what you're doing because that's centralized. On a decentralized exchange, everyone knows what you're doing because is everything is set up on chain. We have the biggest kyber and uniswap are pretty big kyber and uniswap there everything happens entirely on chain for example idex has the order book off chain and then the clearing and settlement is on chain so that's exactly the thing if we're talking about decentralized exchanges depending on which text you're talking about not everything necessarily needs to be on-chain. Obviously, as long as it's on-chain, you don't have fiat. What you then you need is stable coins, which are also, stable coins are an important part of the whole DeFi universe, because you need something that attaches somehow to fiat, otherwise you will just have crypto-crypto. The open source thing is one thing, because it's an exchange, it's different kinds of tokens, there already have been discussions. One developer had to go to court, because the question is, if everything is decentralized, who can be held liable, right? And there are opinions that it could also be the developer that's liable. Because what you also have, obviously, if it's something, such a protocol, if it fails, so you no longer have the central counterparty risk, but in the end, you have a technological risk. And if there's a mistake in the smart contract, if you lose your money, it goes missing, are you liable? Because you should have done a better due diligence? Can you get your money back in any way? Who can you sue in the end? Because most of these are like, you don't, e there's not even like a company 
if you're lucky, maybe there's a foundation that you can maybe ask something and they have knowledge, but that's not necessarily the case for all these decentralized exchanges. There was a study or some people were asked why they're not using DEXs, and it's mostly not even about the legal or technology risk, but the biggest one is liquidity, trading pairs and flow. And the next one then is reliability, meaning bugs and complexity. Because you're not interacting with a central authority or a central system, it's mostly also harder to figure out how to do things. You don't have customer support, and then you also have less speed, be that in trading. So there are aspects like high frequency trading come in, but then also how long does the settlement take? How many blocks do you have to wait? How is it settled depending on what is on and off chain? There are different things coming in. What is also an important point is if you're doing everything on chain and you're using smart contracts, are smart contracts for free? No. On the Ethereum blockchain, you have to pay gas. So that can also make execution on such platforms pretty unreliable in a fiat term, because if you do an on-chain transaction, uh, how much gas do you have to pay? What kind of smart contract are you interacting with? That changes the gas price, but then also the price itself, if you still value everything in dollar and not in ETH, that can change quite a lot. And we've seen that recently where prices increased heavily, um, I just looked at the graph with Levin today, the increase over the recent days, weeks was like tenfold. So for the same transaction, you suddenly pay 10 times as much. Whereas in most centralized exchanges, even if they are maybe more expensive in normal times, obviously you always have like either a fixed fee in mostly in fiat, or then you have a percentage fee depending on the size of your trade. When we then go away from the DEXs, what came after, that's now the ones that are more on the top locked up uh, value places like Maker or Compound, is the whole lending and borrowing. That goes basically one step further than just having an exchange, meaning two parties, I and Alessandro, exchange some tokens. Um, if you have lender and borrowing, everything gets way more complicated. Because like Maker has, just to give one example, has DAI included because everything is on chain. You cannot use US dollar, right? So they have DAI, which is one DAI is one US dollar. So you need this kind of a stable coin, which most of these platforms have included. Then you need collateral. And because you have lending and borrowing, you need an interest rate for borrowing and one for lending. And there's various ways how these can be defined. Um, for like Maker and Compound, there you have an additional feature, which is you have a whole governance model. So the, the idea behind these platforms is instead of having a bank that gives you, if you want to have a mortgage, you need to pay this and this, these rates have to be defined somehow. So because you don't have the bank that defines these rates, you basically have, in the case of Maker, for example, another token, which is, which is MKR which is the governance token. So the maker token holders decide what these rates are, what all the fees are. You have the correct collateral management, you have the different rates, you have DAI, you have maker as governance. You have so many pieces that need to interact with each other that this obviously gets way more complex. 
And here again, this all relies on smart contracts. So it's relying on the Ethereum system. So you need to pay for using that infrastructure and the fees and the gas prices that are associated with it. This makes it also more complex on who can actually decide. I try to look up the current maker token distribution of who holds that, but obviously you don't know, right? Because you can acquire maker tokens. In the beginning, for maker as an example, um, quite a lot of the tokens were held with the foundation. So the governance was basically still, still steered by the foundation. So that's one element that can be more or less centralized depending on the platform you use. So you have an additional layer like who does actually the governance, who is invested in that, and who can make the decisions. It's not just you lending and borrowing, but the governance token has an important role as well. Then what you also have on these, because it's lending and borrowing, most of the platforms still have collateral rates of 150%. You have to deposit 150 to get 100, um, which is also something you have to take into account, which is obviously quite different if you look at the traditional centralized banking system, where this is exactly not the case. What's also interesting is that because this is in the Ethereum system, you can only use stuff that's inherent to the Ethereum blockchain. Obviously, there's way around it. Like I mentioned before, number eight, wrapped Bitcoin, wrapped BTC, which is basically Bitcoin on the Ethereum blockchain. Sounds amazing, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously, that's not easily done. So with wrapped BTC, there's a centralized party where you exchange Bitcoin for wrapped Bitcoin, that you then can use wrapped Bitcoin as collateral, for example, in Maker, which accepts wrapped Bitcoin. So that's one part. Then for lending and borrowing, as long as you have the governance model and these tokens decide the rates, that can basically be done with voting. So the governance tokens have to vote. When it goes one step further and look at the third place on the list, which is synthetics, that's derivatives. So it's the same as the borrowing and lending, but instead of borrowing and lending, you actually do derivatives in a decentralized fashion on chain. But there we're also talking about real world assets. So the next plan they have, I think they want to have, obviously they have like all the crypto coins, which they do derivatives on. But the next thing is Tesla and Apple shares, which they also want to bring to their platform. So that brings another element inside the whole thing. You have real world data, you have the chain. How do you bring these together? Obviously we know how this can be done, right? Oracles. So there come oracles into place because somehow you need to have price feeds from this Tesla or Apple share that's fed into the blockchain that you actually can in a decentralized fashion decide what the actual price is because the blockchain doesn't care, the blockchain doesn't know. Mostly they take the big exchanges to fix the prices. As oracles, do you know how the oracle is built? How much influence do you have on that? And if if you do a huge transaction, how much does it cost you and how profitable is it if you can influence these sources? The alternative would have been instead of doing oracles to take the price sources from a decentralized exchange um, on the Ethereum blockchain uh, and then have the, the, the natural arbitrage 
arbitrageurs uh, keeping that in line with the, the exchange rate at exchanges. But that's, for that, it's probably too slow, too small, too influenceable. Difficult to create enough liquidity so the price is actually probably yes. useful. If you look at the liquidity that's actually within these de decentralized exchanges, I mean, you can influence the price pretty easily, right? Because if there's no one even there to take the arbitrage opportunity, yeah. then there's just no one there and that's not an efficient market. So most of these decentralized exchanges have a little bit the problem of they will be better if you have more liquidity, but how do you attract more liquidity? So this is still in a, for me, it's still an experimental phase. It gets pretty complicated pretty soon. And it's super nice that it's, everything is decentralized, but as a user, can I, as a normal user, actually still verify that everything functions as it should? How many hours do I need to read the smart contract and see if the technology actually works? Okay, how many hours do you need to spend in order to be able to verify that everything's going correctly at six? You would not even be allowed to, to, to try. But, no, but the point is that you don't need to do it because it's six and there's an institution behind that is controlling sure. it and you trust the, 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 yes. the, the circumstances so around. It's but regulated, that it's regulated and, uh, and there will some control along with this regulation. Exactly. But if that's the argument, then you could just as well say you can rely on audits and reviews that are being done and published by these projects. Depends on who is doing it. It depends on who is doing it, but uh, the argument for you don't really need to read all the code. But it's still highly complicated. There's a lot of game theory involved with all these interactions between stable coins, the government's tokens, different rates that you have. So to actually get the incentive models, I have to admit, for me, it's not that obvious. And especially in extreme situations where you have crashes, congestions of the network, especially in Ethereum, there you need to be really careful what you're doing and you have to understand the mechanisms, even if you don't look at the code. I was just trying to point out that there are two different trust models. One is you can trust big institutions and their supervisory uh, institutions or regulatory entities. And the other one is uh, you can audit all of that yourself. And you either have one or the other. And depending on who you are, depending on what your skills are, you might prefer one or the other. It's just not, that's a similar argument to uh, why would I use a Swiss franc or Bitcoin? But uh, there's also the, the, the same thing, I might have trust in the way that the SMB handles that. And the other one, I don't need trust, but I need the skill to review it and understand what's going on. So, but that, even you still use Swiss francs, right? And you, I, I would say you're a person who has the capabilities and the knowledge to yes. trust in what you analyze. So I would say these days, if I only look at the money that, that I like, actively spend, not, not, not my rent, which, which just leaves my account, the money that I actively spend is more of an Bitcoin than um, here. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, by the way, to Michaela and Alex and even you, who all accept <laughs> Bitcoin for lunch. <laughs> Going back to the topic, um, I mean, Hoysi will go a little bit into more details on what you can do with yield farming and how you make money or can earn money or what you can do with, with all these things. The point I basically want to make is like, these are complex systems. You have to understand how they work to see if you earn money or lo lose money. And especially in, what, in reference to what, you have to check if there's a stable coin involved 
is this uh, centralized stable coin such as Tether, which gives you other problems having not really being decentralized or is it something that's within the system and you also have to see if there are oracles used how are these implemented i mean especially the oracle problem is something like kind of the next step that's actively being looked at i think the most famous one is probably Chainlink. then we can go one step further and then that's the next thing that i think will come up in DeFi, and that's the whole part about interoperability Great. <laughs> Has anyone any questions? Why should someone use them? What's the business case? Why should someone use them? Because you don't trust the same entity? At the moment, a lot of people are using it to make money, <laughs> to be honest. That's what Hoysi will talk about. That's what Hoysi will talk about. Because you then have to trade, because you have lending and borrowing rates, and they are, if you look at them, they can be from 3% to something like 20% um, that you can actually make money by lending your crypto because crypto doesn't pay any interest, right? So that's the lending and borrowing easy. Yes, exactly. The question is, I mean, I've been speaking to Hoysi about Telenopolis, but I think that 20% is per annum, as far as I uh, know, more or less. Uh, Annualized uh, yield on that. So for associated risks, I would say it's not such a good lending rate. But that's so obviously you know, that's obviously why you have the high interest, high interest rates. Yeah, but rates. it has to work for three and a half years without any bug, and you need to be quite 100% safe just to make back what you risk. Yeah, it's not such a cool investment, if you ask me. I think that that comes uh, quite a lot to this perception. Right? There is on um, around DeFi or around uh, doing stuff on the blockchain is immutable. That's what, what like Bitcoin proponents told the world for 11 and a half years now. Told, told the world that this is immutable, this is verifiable, this is trustworthy. And then you come to, uh, to, to these things where, where it sounds like, yeah, there's on blockchain and I can make 20% return um, that people then don't really look at the details. But the details are, there is an Oracle problem, there is smart contracting risk, there is uh, centralized collateral problem. And, and all of those are risks. I, I don't even want to go into how big those yeah. risks are, but, but it sounds much more appealing in the beginning than it actually turns out to be. That, that's why I wanted yeah. to do this session now first, talking about the different elements before we have then Hoisi that more talks about the different projects and the trading strategies and how you can actually use that. And the la one last point that I wanted to make that these protocols, systems, Say they are decentralized, but a lot of the ones in the top 10, 20, they still have a lot of centralized elements because they are basically in public beta or beta 2 or whatever you want to call it. And sometimes it's not even easy to find what without actually looking at the code, but then they write state somewhere that they still want to be able to upgrade the protocol. So basically they can change any smart contract within that system. Or, that, that, that happened. I mean, there's, there's yes. not a theoretical risk. This happened for Bangkok. And Maker did, an up, did some updates as well, although that was alpha to beta or whatever it was. But this is another risk that's still there. And um, we're nowhere near, that, near there yet that it's actually as functioning and as decentralized as we would love to have them. But why is such a hyped topic from the VCs or so? Because 
I think there are a lot of challenges in the way, and I don't think we, the business case is not going to be there in the end, I believe. No, but is it a yeah. global decentralized marketplace or anything? I don't think you can't do that. The, the, the business case is not there today. I guess we see a glimpse of those things that are possible if and when, not sure that ever will happen, but if and when really uh, the, the blockchain does not, um, does not mirror and need oracles for that stuff that happens elsewhere. But if really all of that happens on the blockchain, if the shares and the, and the money and all of that is on the blockchain, um, then, then you can have quite a lot of actual decentralized financial products. I highly doubt that any regulator will allow you to trade securities uh, C2C, so customer client to client. It's not possible legally because there is a register specifically for the trade of- Yeah, but the blockchain is the registry. Yeah. So this is not an issue. It's more about AML. You need to make, no. you need to be able to sue someone if it doesn't adhere to the standard. That's what I mentioned in the beginning. Yeah. And the next thing is when we come to that topic, which is why I'm rather skeptical, we have rules against insider trading, investor protection, uh, best execution. We have all these rules and everything that's basically on-chain violates most of these, or if not all of these rules. Yeah, I think it's, um, that, that, that is an ongoing discussion. And there is the somewhat a disconnect between uh, if now I and a friend of mine, uh, if we would decide to, to bet on the price of the adder, that's, that, that's kind of fine. I put $100 on the table, he puts $100 on the table, the winner gets both, gets $200. That's, nobody will sue me for that, um, first because nobody cares, and second, probably it would even be legal, even if somebody would care. And, the, and that's kind of the, the extension of that, uh, is what, what many of these decentralized finance proponents um, try to carry over, yeah, if uh, it's peer-to-peer, -peer, if it's me and a friend of mine, or me and somebody that I met on uh, Uniswap, uh, it's the same thing. It's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. Yeah, I, I totally understand that, but, but many of the arguments around why decentralized finance is great and why we don't need that regulated, why those rules that Werner mentioned maybe don't apply, goes along the lines of, yeah, it's just an extended version of the me and a friend of mine type arguments. Yeah, so, but the, the, the transfer with each other, that's fine. But as long as you trade somewhere and you don't know the opposite, how can you make sure that you adhere to all the standard? If you trade in front of someone, you can assume that he's probably not active in money laundering. Or that he's yeah, that, that might be, but maybe I have, I have uh, insider information about one of the projects. Uh, would it be would like me betting hundred dollar against uh, Alessandro on the price of Ada if I have insider information about how Ada is doing? Would that be legal or would that be illegal? Illegal. <laughs> <laughs> you, you cannot answer this because it always depends jurisdiction, the people. And when I listen to this kind of uh, discussion, it strikes me that all this one talks about it's not about legal aspects. But all the time you are talking about legal regular aspects. Uh, usually the rules and regulations we have apply to financial intermediaries. And as long as you operate kind of P2P and not as financial intermediary, you may be not that uh, um, you may not be that highly regulated. However, there are certain uh, red lines. Uh, those are the ones where you got into criminal activity, but regulations uh, are not necessarily then uh, criminal 
uh, uh, boundaries and silver boundaries are elsewhere. So it really much depends on what we are actually talking about and uh, it remains relatively vague and as long as you just pay $100, I do not see much of a problem unless maybe you will lose $100, uh, but that's probably within the risk appetite. But well, isn't the systematic approach the issue? Like, you know, if we do something, a bet on the table and it's like, you have by coincidence kind of, you find somebody who is willing to do a counterpart, or if you have a systematic approach or you bring people well, together. The systematic and approach is differential intermediary. Uh, and that's what, what Simon said. That's very interesting, interesting that, that it's the financial intermediary who is regulated. But the financial intermediary is just a smart contract. That's the thing that does not exist as a, as a, as a suable entity in decentralized finance. As if then it's really is in, uh, uh, decentralized, then you have nothing to go after. And then the question is, what is then going to happen? Uh, uh, of course, some jurisdiction might suddenly say, as they did in the past, it's forbidden to, to, to own gold, and then they will confiscate when you have gold. And they can only then first go, well, we don't like it, what you are doing here, it is decentralized, we just simply prohibit it. Uh, yeah, and then either you can enforce it, and then it disappears, or you can't enforce it, uh, and then we stay if it has kind of a commercial uh, value or it's nice to do. Yeah. I think the problem more is then also on the part if, is if it's a security or not, especially if some of the projects you have tokens that are like being burned, like share buyback dividend kind of style. And if you have a lot of investors that are invested in that and a lot of investors invested in it, professional investors, funds, um, can it be seen as a financial instrument? And then you go into the whole regulatory yeah, certainly the regulations kicking in, but they, they always lag behind. And then very likely when you end up in this space, you will be somewhere uh, uh, hit by some regulations. Uh, yeah. But the idea per se to invent something which is really decentralized per se excludes that you can go after someone if it's really decentralized and that's just prohibit that, that you use something which exists. Yeah, but you see, it's interesting to see from a conceptual point of view, uh, I more see problems, uh, well, if it's so much decentralized, how can you make sure that it actually works? What I've heard here is a bit, yeah, one is not so sure whether it works if you are not an absolutely professional who can really judge. Uh, and then either it works and it's reliable in practice, and then you will maybe use it. And if it gets too big and too important, then we'll, uh, uh, the jurisdictions will uh, come and regulate and tell us that's allowed, that's not allowed. So I, I hope that Hoysi will tell us a little bit, <laughs> give us a, bit, a little bit more insights in the second part and ha on how these platforms are actually used, who's using them, and looking forward to the second part. This episode was brought to you by CryptoFinance. We are happy to receive comments and feedback. Email your thoughts to research at cryptofinance.ch.